The original title of this panel was, Our Law Schools Operated as a Cartel. The title has been changed to be vacuous. American law schools, envy of the world or General Motors before the fall. Oh, really? I mean, that's a standard step in legal education, isn't it? And it allows a rambling and unfocused discussion. I, I hope that we can at least flutter around the original topic. Because law schools are part of a system with large exclusionary features. Law schools cooperate with the American Bar Association and most states to reduce by three the number of years that anyone can practice law and to charge a toll on the way. Uh, you can be a CEO. In fact, you can even be president of the United States without a credential. But you can't draft a will without a legal education designed to help you conduct a corporate takeover or counsel police on how to run a lineup. An economist would have no trouble identifying this three-year education, much of it utterly useless to most legal tasks, as a means of raising rivals' costs and thus of increasing one's own fees at the expense of consumers. Now, after Parker against Brown, there may be no judicial remedy, but the economic consequences remain. But the consequences remain inside the academy as well as outside since law schools are padded to fill out uh, three years, it's easy to end up with a professorate that can indulge its own preferences. Uh, amateur philosophers or armchair economists masquerading as lawyers. One test of quality in a legal academy, one might think, uh, is whether people could get appointments in the real academic departments of the university to teach those things they most like teaching whether it be economics or philosophy or, or psychology or sociology or history. And often the answer is no, uh, they could not get appointments, uh, which means that at least the and part of, of legal education these days uh, is a lot of padding. Now, contrast the business school model. There's no license needed to conduct a business or practice consulting. And many people bypass postgraduate education in business. But there is a big demand for more formal education, usually two years' worth, uh, but some students stay longer. Uh, but since the whole exercise is voluntary, education is much more rigorous in business schools because if training isn't optimal, students quit or just shorten their stays. Uh, and in the business school model, the customer is supreme, it's more than a little odd, I have long thought, that the whole law school faculty should support the Supreme Court's decision in Virginia Pharmacy. Remember that? That's the decision which said that states have to allow advertising of any service that it's lawful for customers to buy because you can't intervene in a paternalist way. The customer is, is king. But law schools and the ABA intervene in a paternalist way all the time to make it unlawful for people to hire, uh, to draft their will, somebody who has only one or two years of specialized legal education, or, of course, like John Marshall, has no specialized legal education. Much of the legal academy went ballistic a couple of years ago over the Solomon Amendment, uh, which had a trivial effect on how law schools operate. Uh, and you may remember that an amicus brief was filed in the Supreme Court by a very large number of Ivy League professors articulating a theory of statutory interpretation that 
well, to put it mildly, was ludicrous, and which all nine justices rejected as something that, if seriously taught to the students, uh, would just suggest that they were all guilty of malpractice. They were doing this, presumably, in order to protect the independence of the legal academy. But a cynic might ask why uh, that outburst, yet calm acceptance of legal rules that require students to buy three years of whatever a law faculty serves up. And, of course, the cynic wouldn't have much trouble answering that question by observing that the legal professor supports whatever increases demand for their own services while suppressing competition from other means of training. Now, that has consequences, as I've suggested, both external from the consumer's perspective uh, and internal. But you didn't come to hear me address that subject. Our panel today has five distinguished speakers, two of them deans, uh, and one of those deans, the incoming AALS president, and thus a potential lead defendant in some future litigation. <laughs> now, the, the program announced that there would be six speakers, but unfortunately, Rick Sander of UCLA can't make it because of an emergency. So we are down to five, uh, and they will speak in this order. Uh, the first will be George Shepard of Emory. The second will be Maya Schwarzschild of San Diego. Uh, Rodney Smala of uh, Washington and Lee. That's our first dean. Uh, will be next. Paul Campos of Colorado is fourth, and John Garvey, the dean and incoming president, is fifth. And you don't see John. Uh, I'm told that he is on his way and will be here eventually, but it's a dean's prerogative not to listen to other faculty members speak. <laughs> so he will be here eventually. Now, I could introduce all of these people, but you already know them, and I've already said too much, so I will yield. Uh, George Shepard. Maybe I ought to say that, that our understanding is that each of the speakers will talk for about 10 minutes. Uh, there will then be an interchange among the members of the panel and then an interchange with the floor. Hi. I, I teach at an ABA-accredited school, and today I'm going to talk about the union that is one of the large salary increases and large increases in benefits. And to put it another way, I'm going to talk about the law professor cartel to reflect the original title of this uh, uh, symposium. And... What I'm talking about, of course, is the ABA accreditation system. Now, the ABA accreditation system has some good impacts, and many of the people who run it are public-spirited and selfless, but all in all, this system has been harmful. The ABA system has become, in effect, a cartel of law school faculty and administrators, and existing law faculty have gained, existing lawyers have gained, but the losers have been students, universities, and other potential faculty members. The system prevents them from obtaining a teaching job. The system has excluded many from the legal profession, particularly the poor and minorities, and it has raised the cost of legal services, and it has denied legal services to whole segments of our society. Let me just talk about a little bit about the technical aspects of what I think is going on economically with the ABA accreditation system, and I need briefly to mention the four markets which are touched by ABA accreditation. And the first market is the market for hiring law faculty and for hiring law administrators and law librarians. Here, a potential law teacher contracts with the school to provide her teaching and her scholarship and her prestige. In return, the law school offers her money as well as perks, a nice library, uh, uh, perhaps time off, a low teaching load. The second market is the market for uh, legal training. Here, people who want to be lawyers purchase training from the law schools. 
The third market is the legal services market. Here, consumers uh, purchase uh, legal services from lawyers. And all th in all these markets, there's a potential for great diversity. For example, for uh, law faculty, law schools might offer some faculty uh, l large amounts of money with uh, relatively low teaching loads to allow them lots of time to do research. However, other law schools might uh, offer contracts that, that require much more teaching. Or there might be some law schools that might offer people not very much money and lots of teaching. Who knows? The, the, the sky's the limit for the kind of arrangements that could be uh, offered. But there, and for, for legal training too, as uh, Frank has mentioned, that there could be uh, lots of different ways of getting a legal education. You could learn it as an apprentice in a law firm. You could get it the, the way that is required now through three years in a law school, a school. But there's lots of other ways that it could be done too. Now, but there's not much diversity in these markets, and that's because of ABA accreditation, and that's because the ABA system uh, controls the supply. And the law says, and because the states enforce it, that, the, that the, uh, you're only allowed to become a lawyer if you go to an ABA-accredited law school, and there's these accreditation standards that are imposed to limit severely the diversity in these markets. Now, there's a fourth market, too, that I'd like uh, to mention briefly, and that's the, the intra-university market for university resources. And we'll, I'll mention briefly later how the ABA accreditation system causes resources to flow from other parts of universities to law schools, but let me get to that later. Um, now, just also want to talk briefly just about the different ways of thinking about what the objectives are of a law school, because that'll be important for understanding the economics of what's going on. Now, uh, some schools may off, uh, operate like businesses, and this is the so-called proprietary model. They, they try to maximize their income and minimize their costs, like other businesses. But not many law schools run like that. Instead, I think it's easiest to think of most law schools as running like a partnership, a partnership of law faculty. And it's, um, the goals of these law schools are to maximize benefits for the faculty. There are no shareholders who get the profits. Instead, the faculty are the residual claimants of the operations of the law school. And... Uh, so it's just like a, a law firm partnership. And, and bear with me as we go through this to see if this way of thinking about a law school is, is right. So in order to see how, why ABA accreditation runs the way it does right now, let's talk a little bit about the history of ABA accreditation. So uh, because the history shows what the real goals of accreditation have been over the years and, and how we might understand how history affects what's going on now. In the early 20th century, physicians really excelled at limiting the supply of new doctors. They, at one point in the early, early 20th century, uh, imposed strong new accreditation standards and uh, uh, cut the number of, law, of medical schools in half and reduced the number of incoming doctors about in half. And lawyers were very jealous of this, and so they said, hey, let's do this too. And so until the Great Depression, there were really no educational requirements for becoming a lawyer. You could do it as an apprentice. For 100 years before the Depression, you could just apprentice in a law firm and then take a perfunctory bar exam and become a lawyer. Some people, it's just like the business school model now, some people chose to do it that way. Some people chose to go to law school. You could do it any way you wanted. But um, then during the Depression, lawyers and elite law schools finally succeeded in limiting supply because during the Great Depression there was a downturn in the demand for legal services so the existing lawyers wanted to limit the amount of new lawyers that were entering the market and especially they wanted to shut down 
the uh, proprietary law schools that had arisen in the early 20th century mainly to serve uh, minorities. There were a lot of uh, Eastern Europeans coming to uh, the New World and being served by these huge law schools. Suffolk Law School was the biggest law school in the country with over 4,000 students, a for-profit law school. And so in order to limit the competition from these new lawyers and for law schools, the existing law schools to uh, limit the competition from these law schools in the law school market, the existing law schools and existing lawyers thought a good way to do this was was twofold. First, to impose strict accreditation standards to try to reduce the number of these law schools that were competing with existing law schools and also to impose bar exams for the first time, for the first time to impose strict bar exams. Until 1927, bar exams were not strict at all. They were perfunctory and there were no accreditation requirements. There were no legal education (coughs) requirements. You didn't even have to go to law school. You didn't even have to go to college. But then during the Great Depression, the ABA was able finally to convince most states to require graduation from an ABA accredited law school in order to uh, become a lawyer. And a main reason that this legislation was sought, or from Supreme Court rulings was sought, was to reduce what was called overcrowding in the profession. That was the main reason for accreditation, was because there was too many lawyers overcrowding existing lawyers. And so to reduce this overcrowding, you wanted accreditation standards that would limit the number of of law schools, thereby limiting the number of new lawyers. Um, so, with that background, seeing that that much of the impetus for accreditation was to limit the supply of lawyers, uh, let's talk about the actual impact today of accreditation. No, first, procedurally, there's a bunch of requirements that one has to meet in order to become a law school. And so. And before we talk about the procedure and substance, you can, you can sort of guess what the nature of all the requirements are going to be from the fact that, that uh, legal educators have captured, well, captured maybe is a loaded term, have uh, occupy most of the positions in the uh, accreditation hierarchy. So first, there's a, um, many procedural requirements to become accredited. You have to file many expensive reports. You have to pay for site visits by the ABA. You have to be, be in operation for for a year at least before you can even apply for accreditation. So you have to go through the expense, the dangerous expense of doing that and with no guarantee that you'll be even able to operate after that. So the total cost of going through the process is, is uh, several million dollars. So these procedural requirements operate as a stiff barrier to entry to new law schools. And then there's a whole slew of substantive requirements. And the underlying theme of the requirements is that they are a wish list of, for faculty. They in, they, the standards increase pay and benefits and decrease workloads. And so, give you a few specific examples. There's, there, for a long time, there was official accreditation standards that required high salaries. Now, as part of the settlement with the Justice Department a decade or so ago, that was eliminated. But still, in practice, there's there'll be uh, no there'll be letters from the ABA accreditors saying that you aren't paying enough to be able to retain high-quality faculty, so hint, hint, you should raise salaries. And the uh, standards also limit teaching loads. They require hiring of full-time faculty and limit competition from part-time faculty. They require expensive offices and buildings and, and expensive libraries. The, the price of admission to accreditation is, a, is a, the, the common law is you have to spend at least a million dollars a year on your library. And uh, um, so... The best way to look at 
the ABA certification system is, is, is a, a horizontal price-fixing price agreement among law faculty. It's a cartel of law faculty. In the ABA accreditation system, the faculty representatives who serve in the ABA accreditation system get together and agree on minimums for salaries and benefits for faculty. And the system enforces its agreement by boycotting any faculty member that agrees to lower wages and benefits. Suppose that a faculty member agreed to wages and benefits that are below the system minimums, then the ABA would act to eliminate her job. The ABA would not accredit the employer of this person or, or the ABA would threaten disaccreditation. And the, the system also enforces its price fixing by limiting entry of new uh, competitors for the system makes it much more difficult, as I've already indicated, for new law schools to enter the market. Now, why would law schools and practicing lawyers agree to this arrangement where law faculty increase their salaries and benefits? Well, first reason for law schools is, as I've discussed, that they're, they're, they're this partnership model where they're really operating for the benefit of the law faculty. But second, the system also benefits law schools uh, because it may have increased their costs, but it also eliminates competition from new competing law schools. So it's like if General Motors agreed to wage increases for the UAW, but in return the UAW agrees to arrange a boycott of the products of all the other car manufacturers. Now, why do practicing lawyers uh, support the system? Because the system reduces the number of law schools, which reduces the number of new lawyers who enter the market for legal services. So what are the impacts of the ABA system? Let's first look at the market for law faculty. It's reduced the number of jobs for law faculty, and it's increased the salaries of those who obtain the jobs and the increased their benefits. And so um, especially as accreditation tightened up since the early 70s, the the salaries for law faculty far outpaced the salaries for um, other academics. Then, and looking at the market for legal training, here it also reduces industry output, to put it in economics terms. It's the, it reduces the total number of student positions at law schools. And it does this by limiting the number of new law schools and by making it more expensive to set up a law school. And it also limits the capacity of each school. There are ABA standards that limit student-faculty ratios. So if there were no ABA system, there might be 50 more law schools serving students. And a lot of those would serve minorities because the ABA accreditation standards are set up in a way that has an LSAT cutoff. And uh, certain minorities tend to, on average, score lower than, than uh, non-minority students. So what, in effect, the ABA has imposed is an, a, a system that cuts out law schools that would serve a majority, especially African-American law schools. So the limit on the output of legal education has had the expected impact on price. The AB system causes the price of education to rise, but to double. If you look at unaccredited schools in California, their tuition is about half what it is for accredited schools. I mean, just think of it, a million dollars a year budget for accredited law school. If you, if you, on average, that's about $4,000 per student just for the library that's required by ABA accreditation. And it also, the system also prevents innovation. If there wasn't accreditation, then whole new forms of legal education might arise, but the ABA uh, controls prohibit it. So the ABA permits only deluxe uh, Mercedes or Lexus style of legal education and eliminates the, 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 the Corolla style of legal education. And in the market for legal services too, 
the accreditation system has stark impacts. It decreases the number of lawyers, increases the price for legal services, and and why, why does the price increase? Because it increases the cost of becoming a lawyer and just increases the number of people who can become lawyers. So because of the accreditation system, you really can make a go of it only if you make more than about $50,000 a year paying back your student loans unless you're financed by, lucky to be financed by parents. And so it eliminates a whole group of lawyers who might otherwise be willing to serve for thirty dollars to $50,000 per year. And so it means that in effect the the lawyers are only available at more than 50 or $60 an hour rather than uh, being available for, for cheaper prices. And so what, in fact, this means is that whole uh, segments of our population cannot be served by legal services. Um, then just finally one comment on the inter-university market for funding. A common ploy that's used with the ABA accreditation system is as follows. I remember this is what happened the last time the accreditors came to my law school. You sat down with them at lunch and they say, well, what do you need around here? And you think, well, maybe a new library or we need better faculty offices. Or, and then you, you tell them this and then they write it in the report and say, we are not going to accredit this law school again unless these new things are, are done for the law school. And so then the, the dean can walk across the street over to the administration and say, look, we're going to lose our accreditation if we don't get the new library or the new faculty offices. And if the uh, president is a rube, then the, uh, the, the president may fall for this and, and, uh, and uh, transfer assets from other parts of the university to the law school. And that, this commonly happens if the, if the president doesn't keep his or her wits about, about him. So what should be done? If I was potentate, eliminate accreditation requirements. Make it like business school. Make it like engineering school. Make it like it was in the legal profession for 100 years before the Great Depression, which is often viewed as the golden age of the legal profession. And turn it back there. Let the market sort things out. People who need to do very complex transactions, well, they'll, as they did before, choose to go to law school. People who just want to draft wills, might not go to law school, they might learn as apprentices. Or if you choose to go, to go to law school, there would be cheaper law schools that would be available. Perhaps one-year programs, perhaps three-year programs, perhaps five-year programs. The market would sort things out and there would be cheaper legal services available for many people in our society. Thanks. Thank you very much, Professor Schwarzschild. But before we move on, surely the dean of the law school would have an ethical obligation to alert the president of the university to the fact that this is all a ruse, wouldn't it? Uh, on that word ruse, um, return to me. Um, it is, uh, hi. Um, it is, uh, I think this is a, a fairly unsurprising story, both from uh, Professor Shepard and, and I think from many of the rest of us, of uh, benefits and costs. Um, this particular story may also be a story with some prospect that uh, greed may kill off a good thing. Um, perhaps a better thing than either uh, Judge Easterbrook or Professor Shepard um, at least seem to be acknowledging that we may be in the process of, of killing. The story of American legal education as um, just 
reviewed, uh, is I think pretty well known to most here. Um, especially in the 30s, the organized bar, without objection, of course, from the higher education industry, uh, lobbied through a requirement in almost every state uh, that you have to have a law degree from an accredited law school to be eligible to take the bar exam. Uh, until the 1970s and even later, most law schools were uh, academically and intellectually not burdened by excessive ambitions. Um, the teaching was doctrinal. Uh, faculty scholarship wasn't a priority. Uh, uh, there was very little interdisciplinary academic work. Uh, even the best law schools weren't necessarily intellectual hotbeds. Uh, but there was an enormous gap in terms of scholarly activity and ambition uh, between the best law schools, um, Harvard, Yale, Chicago, and a very few others, uh, and all the rest. In the 70s and 80s, that began to change. Uh, more and more law schools, near, nearly all of them really, began to encourage faculty scholarship, publication, and a more academic style. Smart, intellectual, academically ambitious faculty were hired at law schools where they would have been out of place in the past. All of this costs money, and it was mostly paid for by tuition money, eased, of course, by the legal monopoly the law schools have on access to the bar exam. But until the 1980s, tuition costs didn't go up ahead, or very much ahead, of the general inflation rate. What you had was a rise in intellectual standards and a democratization upwards of legal education. What had been confined academically to Yale and Chicago and Harvard and a few other places became available at a, mu at a much broader array of law schools. Law faculty scholarship increased across the country. Law professors, in fact, publish more and the quality of scholarship is much more widely spread out than it used to be. There's smart, good legal scholarship from professors at law schools that would have fielded few or no scholars a generation or two ago. It was an admirable development, I at least would suggest. You can't prove it, but it's reasonable to think that this new emphasis on scholarship affected, improved classroom teaching, and also that it was and is a force for the law as a liberal profession, a kind of hydraulic pushing for law intellectually and even morally, uh, to be something more than a business and a counterweight to the obvious market forces pushing in the opposite direction. So far, so admirable. What began to change in the 80s and has kept momentum since is that costs began to go up at a very fast rate. Uh, over the past three decades, at uh, about triple, between double and triple, nearly triple, uh, the rate of inflation, both for private and for public law schools, and in some years, and at many schools, even more than the triple the inflation rate. Where is the money coming from? Law students and their families, public subsidies, sometimes direct, more often through government-subsidized student loan programs. Tuition is approaching $40,000 a year, uh, just for tuition, not for living costs, at some private law schools, and is commonly in the 30s. Even some public state law schools now charge tuition uh, in the mid-20s. It's increasingly common for law students to graduate with six-figure debt, many just for the three, or if they're in a night program, four years of law school, and certainly uh, for the combined college and law school debt that they accumulate. Um, where's the money going? 
Senior faculty salaries have risen well ahead of inflation. Uh, law professors make double and more the average of college and university professors generally. Uh, I'm not overpaid, and no one on this panel is, but everybody else is. Uh, teaching loads have gone down dramatically. Uh, at many law schools 30 years ago, professors taught three or more courses per semester, uh, six or more courses per year. Now it's common for law professors to teach three courses per year, two courses one semester and just one the other semester. And non-faculty law school spending has also gone up uh, enormously. Lots more administrative staff than there used to be at most law schools and much more lavish buildings and other facilities. Is all this defensible normatively? Is it sustainable economically? Normatively, I think, Judge Easterbrook might disagree, Professor Shepard might disagree, normatively, I think a modest subsidy for legal scholarship, whether from student tuition or from direct or indirect public, public, public subsidies, is defensible. There's a reasonable case that it contributes to better legal education and a better legal profession in a society, going back to de Tocqueville, where the legal profession is uniquely important and influential. Whether it's defensible as the costs go off into the stratosphere is a different question. Is it defensible or, or not? Is it sustainable economically? I think it might be at the top 20 or 30 law schools. The prestige and sorting function of the best law schools, like the best colleges and universities generally, uh, seems to allow these schools uh, to keep upping the ante, if not unlimitedly, then clearly a lot. It seems to me much more dubious um, the economic sustainability of this at the large number of lesser-ranked law schools across the country. There are about 200 accredited law schools in the U.S. Uh, it obviously depends on law students and their families continuing to be willing to take on crushing debt uh, and for the government and for government-subsidized loans and other subsidies to continue. And, of course, for the Elizabethan monopoly to continue whereby only accredited, mostly university law schools qualify you for the bar exam. And this monopoly could be abolished by changing the law with the stroke of a pen. Um, there are obviously online and other cheaper alternatives that would be readily available. Professor Shepard described how to some extent they existed before the 30s. Um, and if they were permitted to compete, um, would uh, once again appear. There are already some entrepreneurial efforts in that direction. Concord Law School, an online virtual law school operated by the Stanley Kaplan people, um, uh, is, is one example. There are others, um, a little bit like Suffolk Law School, perhaps, uh, and some of the other proprietary law schools uh, in the early decades of the 20th century. There's one more aspect of the cost question, um, something that's sometimes discussed in other contexts, uh, but not often in this context. The high cost of legal education is, I've suggested, partly a subsidy for legal scholarship. Uh, and there is more and better legal scholarship uh, at a lot more law schools than there was 30 or 40 years ago. But the scholarship, like the classroom teaching, tilts substantially to the political left, as John McGuinness and various others um, have documented uh, virtually unanimously at many law schools. Uh, and this is especially true in many of the subject areas that are most overtly political, constitutional law and public international law, for instance. At some point, law students, their families, and the legislatures might plausibly feel that subsidizing legal scholarship is either justifiable or not, 
but that it's harder still to justify if you are getting only one side of the story for your money. This is all, I must say, um, in sadness more than anything else. The model of legal education that spread across the country uh, in the last 40 years, I think, is in many ways admirable. Uh, if there's a major shakeout, and I think there might be, the existing model is very apt to be replaced by something worse, more commercial, intellectually, even morally, uh, much shallower and less serious, uh, potentially much more bureaucratic and managerial. Uh, we had a conference at the University of San Diego on just this topic um, uh, earlier in the year, and uh, Jane Barnard from, from William and Mary um, gave a presentation on how uh, legal education might be more or less within the existing framework made cheaper. And I think all of us, she herself I think, uh, but certainly the rest of us, felt that what was being described was in a way a kind of Dilbertization of uh, law teaching. Um, very strict managerial control of how much you publish, you know, kind of keystroke um, uh, management, uh, citation management. You guys laugh, but um, something very much like this happens already in England. Uh, not so much, well, for law, for law teaching, among other things, because law there is an undergraduate topic. Um, so law, along with other things, is subject in Britain to what's called the research assessment exercise, um, which um, counts footnotes and counts citations and uh, 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 allocates funds to uh, universities and colleges uh, across Britain on that basis. Um, it could happen here. I don't think that would be a gain. I think the loss to the university, to the legal profession, and to the society could be considerable. Uh, but it wouldn't be the first time that monopoly and perhaps greed led to a breakdown and to new and perhaps in at least some ways worse institutions. Dean Small. Well, I'm going to sound a, a realistic note and to some degree, I think, a guardedly optimistic note. The realistic note is this. I, I find it improbable that the ABA accreditation system will be abolished anytime in the next 10 or 15 years. Maybe I misread the body politic. Maybe Mike Huckabee, having won the Iowa caucuses and determined to abolish the IRS, um, could be sold to abolish uh, the ABA's accreditation system as well. But it does strike me as uh, not particularly realistic that we uh, will be operating under some entirely different legal structure uh, in the next five or ten years, certainly uh, by the time my tenure as a law school dean is done. Uh, nevertheless, I think we are in a period in the history of legal education in which some combination of internal and external forces are conspiring to usher in a period in which we will, I think, see some genuine creativity and innovation and loosening of the accreditation reins and uh, experimentation uh, in which market forces will be allowed to operate and some interesting new models for legal education will emerge. And they will emerge not only from uh, new entrants into the marketplace, but you will see some very traditional, very established law schools to some degree reinvent themselves in, I think, an interesting variety of ways. Uh, and this will be good. It will be good for the underlying 
uh, uh, missions of law schools. It'll be good for consumers. It'll be good for the public. It'll be good for the profession. Uh, to try to convince you that this is not entirely a fantasy, uh, I'm going to indulge in a story about my own law school uh, and what has happened there over the last six months. I became the, uh, uh, the appointed dean, the person that was designated as the dean at Washington and Lee, about a year ago uh, today. It was mid-January a year ago or so. I was already a dean at another school at the University of Richmond. I was going to become the dean at Washington and Lee. And like many of you and many folks that are in legal education had been to many conferences on the sort of topic that we're talking about now and was feeling the sense of the intensifying of these discussions uh, caused by a number of forums that have been sponsored by the ABA section on legal education, for example, uh, and law schools around the country. Uh, as I was brooding about moving from one law school deanship to another, and as I was brooding about the issues that are being debated nationally and that are part of the themes of some of the major sessions, not only here today in, in this room, but uh, at, the, at the ALS session itself, uh, an idea struck me. And uh, I, I was actually, it was one of those things that happens uh, when, when you're just, I was driving to Washington to meet five or six trustees of the university who are the trustees that are the lawyers uh, who are part of the law committee uh, that supervises uh, uh, the, the, the university. So this was for an incoming dean, an important group of people to meet. Uh, there were five or six of them gathering in Washington, D.C., including among them uh, Robert Gray, uh, who had just finished his uh, tenure as the president of the American Bar Association. And as I'm driving up, I know that they are concerned about uh, how the law school is going to maintain its uh, ranking in U.S. news. Washington and Lee is a good, solid, respected law school, been ranked over the last 10 years from 17th to 25th, sort of in that range in, in American law schools. They're concerned about that. They're concerned about the pressures on them as trustees to keep pouring more and more money uh, into the law school to prop it up, uh, to allow it to compete in the marketplace for professors, uh, to allow it to compete for students by bigger fi financial aid packages, wondering where it will end. All the other elements of the university also want more money. No one's treated well in the, in the federal system that is a university. Everybody always feels they're, they're not getting enough. And, uh, and so sort of want to know what, what I'm going to do about it. Uh, so I'm driving up to D.C. thinking about this, and, and an idea pops into my head. And I said, what if we abolished the third year of law school in its traditional form, abolished it as an academic uh, uh, form, and instead made the third year for law students entirely experiential, uh, a creative blend of simulated practice experiences and actual practice experiences, and invited the profession into the enterprise of legal education and invited the law school out into the profession so that we would create experiences, a merger and acquisitions deal or an adoption uh, or, a, or a divorce, uh, whatever it might be, we would create them not simply using the skill sets of uh, traditional academics, but also borrowing from uh, the, the profession, borrowing from our alumni to, to design the experiences that students would have. 
I said, well, maybe we could turn the entire third-year class into a fictional law firm with different departments. We might have a public interest section and, a, and an antitrust division and uh, intellectual property department and so on. Uh, and we could abolish grades in the traditional sense, abolish the academic calendar. Uh, students could keep timesheets. Uh, we might impose, as an idealistic firm, uh, a certain minimum amount of pro bono activity or public service activity that we'd require you to do. Maybe think about extracurricular things like law review and so on as a kind of version of that, of that sort of public interest component, uh, equivalent to what a practicing lawyer might do if they serve on a bar committee or, or a school board or something like that. Uh, but, but eliminate the Socratic method, the classroom method, the traditional methods, uh, methods of pedagogy as they exist and seem to exist actually quite successfully in the first and second year was something very creative, much more intense, much more rigorous, uh, and, and, uh, and, uh, and more contextual in the third year. Uh, impulsively, probably foolishly, I floated the idea out <laughs> among these four lawyer trustees, all of whom were very accomplished people within the profession. Uh, and I was shocked at their reaction. It was overwhelmingly positive. Uh, they were, they had all sorts of interesting questions, exactly the kinds of questions that are probably circulating through your mind. But overall, they said, this would be great. This would be fascinating. Could you do it? Would it be like legal to do it? Would the, would the ABA allow you to do it? Uh, and then they started to say, and could you ever pull it off? Would your law faculty ever accept it? Would it be such a departure from the traditional model of law school that it's impossible to believe that our relatively traditional law school faculty at Washington and Lee, a very strong, distinguished teaching and scholarly faculty at a school that's been around for, you know, over a century, uh, has a very proud history, many famous graduates, uh, John W. Davis, Lewis Powell, with, with, with all that tradition, with all that momentum, and, and well, I guess I should say inertia, uh, is it imaginable that your law faculty would uh, seriously entertain such an idea? And are you crazy as an incoming dean uh, to propose something this, uh, this uh, different from the traditional model? I decided to do it. I began to talk to other members of uh, the alumni body, people who were on the federal bench, uh, people who were in very different parts of, uh, of the profession. Uh, I talked to uh, members of the faculty that I was about to join, uh, people that I'd already developed some friendships with and some relationships with. I talked to the university president, to the provost, uh, and I didn't run into dig-in-your-heels resistance. <laughs> I, there was skepticism. People had a lot of questions about the educational merits. People wondered about accreditation issues. They wondered about how the marketplace would react. All the right questions. But I didn't sense any entrenched in, inability uh, to actually think creatively about what, by my lights, is quite a significant departure from the traditional model that had been around since Christopher Columbus Langdell discovered um, the modern law school. <laughs> and uh, we appointed a faculty committee, which is, of course, what one does. It was a somewhat larger version than our traditional curriculum committee. That committee brooded over this and debated and met week after week, read the Carnegie Foundation report, uh, read many of the other documents that have been produced in the last uh, year or so addressing the perceived deficiencies in, in, in legal education. Uh, looked at what other professions do uh, to train people in their professions, 
most of, most of which have some sort of apprenticeship period in which theory and doctrine eventually sort of give way uh, to the application and problem-solving elements of being a professional. Uh, and at the end of the semester that we have just completed, that committee voted unanimously to endorse a plan to change the third year of law school along the lines that I have suggested. Uh, there's a lot of fine print. There's a lot of issues to be fought through. There's a lot of work to be done. But it showed to me that a group of legal academics could actually think, in my view, quite idealistically uh, about what if they were, this is, the, this is the thought experiment that we used, what if we were creating a law school for somebody else, a new startup school, and we took as our goal providing the students who were coming in with the very best possible legal education we could give them. How would we define that? What would be the ingredients that we would put into that? Would the current model be that? And we came to the conclusion the current model would not be that. We ought to be more ambitious. Uh, we, ought to look, we ought to try to do more things than what we currently do, which we think was principally teaching people to think like a lawyer, teaching them a number of basic, important theoretical constructs about the law, teaching them the elements of legal reasoning. We thought what we would do is also at least start them down the road of being a lawyer, start them down the road of applying the theory and doctrine in context, start them down the road of developing a sense of judgment, start them down the road of developing a sense of professional identity. It would be you know, a modest start, but it would be far different from what most of us experienced when we were in law school, and we thought better. We also thought that if it was a good idea, the marketplace would reward us. If it's a bad idea, the marketplace will punish us, uh, but we were willing to give it a shot and see what happens. Uh, now, the full faculty will vote on this proposal in the three weeks. I hope they're watching the video. I hope they'll, 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 they'll uh, watch the campaign speech here. Uh, but I'm reasonably optimistic that at a fairly traditional American law school, the faculty will vote to make this change. You may think of it as a tinkering change or an incremental change, and there's a lot of things it doesn't change. The students will still be there three years. They'll still be paying and so on. But as things go in legal education, I think it's fairly, fairly significant. And I suspect you will see within the accreditation framework that currently exists many schools, the most elite levels in the middle tier, new entrants to the marketplace, experiment in a wide variety and interesting variety of ways. And if we were having this meeting five years from now, we'd be looking at a lot more diversity uh, in legal education than currently exists, uh, something that I think will improve the quality of education, improve uh, our um, obligations to the public, and to some degree, if not eliminate the cartel, at least make it a much more porous and less efficient operation. Thanks. Thank you, Dean Small. Professor Compos. Uh, thank you. Uh, I think I have a, just a few uh, rather rambling thoughts on all of this in the, the style that uh, Judge Easterbrook deplored at the beginning of his uh, remarks. Um, what, what is a cartel? Well, if we were going to be serious about this concept as a matter of microeconomic analysis, I think we would note that a cartel is normally considered to be something that requires a fairly homogenous good in order to be able to be sustained because there are too many problems uh, in uh, 
in monitoring and enforcing an agreement between the members of the cartel if you have too much heterogeneity in what's being produced. Uh, so I think the first question we would want to ask in this context is, well, what is it exactly that law schools are producing? And I think it's a too narrow of a, of a uh, focus to say, well, what they're producing are uh, lawyers. What they're producing are people who are uh, qualified to uh, at least uh, uh, take the bar exam in the states in which uh, they hope to be admitted to practice. Well, that, of course, is true. And to the extent that our focus is on that function, then I do think we do see a lot of uh, uh, things that can be described uh, in a useful way as cartelization in the, uh, in the legal profession. But law schools produce a lot of other things as well, and I wonder to what extent those things uh, would be affected or undermined if we were to enter the libertarian paradise in which essentially um, all kinds of licensing requirements are eliminated to the extent that people are, are arguing for that. I'm not, well, I don't want to argue one way or the other here. I want to um, simply throw out some, some thoughts in regard to that, following up somewhat on, on I think, on Maimon's observations about, um, about what the effects of, of deregulation and uh, decertification uh, might be. I, let me frame it in the following way. Um, why is Barack Obama going to be the next president of the United States? Uh, to a significant extent, he's going to be the next president of the United States because he was president of the Harvard Law Review. Uh, that's needless to say somewhat of an oversimplification, but uh, not so much that it doesn't have a certain amount of usefulness. Now, why was he president of the Harvard Law Review? Well, because he was good at taking issue spotting exams and at site checking law review articles. Uh, that is also somewhat of an oversimplification, but if you bootstrap all these oversimplifications together just for the purposes of argument, um, I, I think the point that I, that I think that, that helps uh, us focus on is that law schools, and here specifically I mean, of course, elite law schools, have functions that go way beyond uh, preparing people to practice law, which of course they generally don't do. Uh, is as you know, elite, elite legal institutions just uh, will tell you know the members of elite legal institutions will tell you as a matter of course that they don't expect the people that they hire from elite law schools to be able to do anything of the of the tasks that they will be assigned to do once they have been hired or hardly any of them and they need to train them and all they care as I've heard elite lawyers say before is that you don't mess them up too much before you hand them over to us so that we can train them how to be lawyers. Um, so. It seems to me that the, the elite schools that, uh, that, were, that have already been referenced by Maimon uh, and, and others as well uh, fulfill a, a, a particular social function which has almost nothing to do with the certification requirements put uh, in place by the ABA or the ALS uh, or even the state bars, which is to produce social elites. That's why they're elite, right? And what it means for them to be elite is that they're producing social elites who will fulfill a certain uh, function. Maybe it's this Tocquevillian function of, of, of giving us these you know, priests, essentially, uh, who, will, who will run the society. I mean, ask yourself this question. Why are so many, uh, if you take the three, uh, the three uh, democratic uh, serious democratic contenders for the, uh, for the presidential nomination, uh, all of them are lawyers. Uh, two of them are Ivy League lawyers, you know, Harvard and Yale. Um, uh, why? You know, why are we being run by lawyers? A question that's being asked uh, over, has been asked by many, many people. Why, why do lawyers run our country uh, so much uh, in so many ways? Well, I think it's because law schools, uh, certainly in the last couple of generations, are constructed as social institutions to produce uh, people who feel as if they, are, uh, they ought to be running things. 
Right. That's what we, I mean, what, what we mean by thinking like a lawyer is that you are the kind of person who thinks that you ought to be deciding uh, how things ought to be. Um, the, it, 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 we see this, of course, most endemically, uh, I think, uh, in, in, as this has been, of course, very uh, uh, sharply criticized, and sometimes in the judiciary, in which you have you know, people who have no apparent qualifications to decide such things as to whether you know, abortion ought to be legal or not, or uh, you know, whether affirmative action is a good thing or not, or whether capital punishment is a good thing or not. What qualifications do these people have to decide these things? Uh, well, they went to law school. What did they learn in law school? Uh, the rule in Shelley's case. And uh, that, of course, qualifies them to, uh, uh, you know, apparently tell us whether abortion ought to be legal or not. I mean, and I'm being somewhat facetious here, but I, I, do, I do think it's important to consider uh, what a r rather remarkable system we have constructed. Why is it that um, we do have lawyers deciding these kinds of things in a society uh, in which we have lots and lots of other people who might be deciding them. Well, I think it's partially because the structure of legal education is essentially to, you know, at one level at least, to create elites. Um, now, would that be affected by, uh, by getting rid of licensing requirements? Not at all, I don't think. Because, as has already been mentioned, getting rid of licensing requirements would probably have zero effect on the elite law schools, essentially, because what makes them elite has almost nothing, in fact, I would say nothing, to do with licensing requirements per se. Um, it would have effects, of course, on, uh, on the legal education market as a whole. And here I think we ought to focus uh, with, some, uh, with some intensity on, on these hierarchical distinctions in the system when we ask questions like, uh, should we change or eliminate uh, licensing requirements? Because let's face it, the, the, talking about Harvard and Yale on the one end and then you know, a fourth tier law school on the other as both being, um, you know, as, as being similar institutions, it's, it's kind of like talking about the United States and Andorra as being sovereign nations. Yes, that's true uh, in a certain formal sense, but it's very, uh, it's very misleading in terms of thinking about the actual uh, role that, the, that these, uh, that these uh, institutions and uh, social structures play in their respective um, societies. Um, so here I would also, li I'd like to reference uh, some, uh, some other examples of social institutions which didn't seem to make any sense at all in terms of what was being done within those institutions if we, those things are analyzed in sort of rational bureaucratic terms, but which seem to somehow do what they, uh, what they, uh, what they, what they were uh, at least unconsciously designed to do socially quite well. For instance, consider the, British, the, the traditional British public school education system. Uh, until relatively recently, uh, you know, Eton and Harrow and, the, and rugby and places like that, those schools uh, took the British upper class uh, for the most part and uh, taught gentlemen to, uh, at least in theory, to translate Aeschylus and Cicero uh, and didn't teach them much of anything else uh, and then unleashed them to go run uh, the uh, English uh, government and, and bureaucracy. Um, and so, you know, so uh, it, it, the, the training, as was pointed out by many sort of you know, Benthamite critics of this of, of, of the system, didn't seem to have hardly anything to do at all with the um, with the social function that these people were going to then play. And yet, they somehow ended up playing it, um, if not particularly well, at least uh, adequately enough to keep the British Empire from having the sun set on it too quickly. Now, uh, what does this have to do with the, 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 with the, 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 con the 
content and regulation of legal education in America today? Well, I would suggest the following. In terms of thinking about this, these issues in terms of cartelization, um, I think to think in terms of a cartel is to think too narrowly about what law schools do. Law schools, it seems to me, to do, do four things primarily. The first is prepare people in some way or form to be able to take the bar and to become licensed attorneys. True enough. There, the cartelization model, I think, uh, has a lot of saliency, and you know, I've already heard lots of good things about that. But just some other things as well, where I don't know if, the, um, if these licensing requirements have much effect at all, or if, if we were to get rid of them, maybe uh, we would undermine these roles. One is uh, to generate knowledge. Um, and I think Maimon spoke uh, quite eloquently on this point. Let's, I, I do think that there's been a significant gain uh, within academia by making law schools uh, in uh, intellectually serious places to an extent that uh, more than they were, say, a couple of generations ago. Now, as, uh, as uh, Judge Easterbrook pointed out, there's, of course, a lot of bad uh, a lot of bad scholarship being done uh, within law schools, but there's a lot of bad scholarship being done all over the university, right? I don't think we should flagellate ourselves too much uh, for doing bad sociology and bad economics. There's plenty of bad sociology and bad economics and sociology and economics departments as well. Another uh, important function of the, of the law school, and here I think uh, we shouldn't under, uh, underestimate the importance of, of this, is uh, we uh, have constructed a, 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 a institution that is, whose function is to, to legitimate, essentially, the socio-political status quo. I mean, that's what law schools do, right? They, they essentially, they, they, you know, to the extent that we are um, replicating uh, the legal system, what we're basically saying is that the legal system as it is currently constituted uh, is on the whole a good thing with maybe some reformist tweaking on the margins. And as, of course, many people have pointed out, or at least some people have pointed out, there's, there's an inherent tension perhaps between the knowledge function of a unit within a university and the legitimation function of the law school. And yet the legitimation function of the law school, I think, is very crucial. And then finally, something I've already referenced, is this, uh, this uh, function of producing social elites, which I think is really quite critical to why law schools are structured the way they are. Um, if we just turn law schools into uh, a, just a straight trade school in the sense of we got rid of all uh, we got all we got rid of all academic pretension and we got rid of all licensing requirements, uh, what effect would this have on these other functions? Uh, maybe we would it would become harder to understand why it is that lawyers should be running everything. Um, if lawyers were just thought of as being sort of glorified mechanics, or maybe more realistically, uh, well, not even glorified accountants, because accountants have licensing requirements of their own. Uh, but yeah, so glorified mechanics, would we then think that um, lawyers ought to be deciding all sorts of crucial social things, uh, social questions in ways that um, uh, don't seem particularly connected to their, uh, to their specific professional training? Uh, I'm just throwing this out as a question. I don't know the answer to that. But uh, what, I, you know, what I'm just generally trying to suggest here is that the social role of the law school is much more complicated than just preparing people to enter the legal profession by uh, qualifying them, uh, formally at least, uh, to take the bar. And we've got a very complex and rich social institution that we're dealing with here. Uh, and so I don't think that we should limit our analysis to it, to that question. That's clearly, that's clearly a, a crucial question, uh, but that's only a small part, I think, of what this social institution does, which uh, we have created uh, in, a, 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 in this uh, in some, somewhat unconscious way over the course of the last few generations. Thank you. Well, 
You get to, you get to come up, but the doing it sneakily just won't work. Sorry. Dean Garvey. I'm very sorry for having been late. I, um, and I find myself in the uncomfortable position of, of um, agreeing with the speakers when I'm supposed to be the I'm supposed to be the designated defender of law schools and the status quo. So um, I am I suppose suited to that point of view by virtue of being a dean and the president of the ALS. Um, so I, I won't disappoint you. Although I I like to think I came by my ideas. First and my role second on account, um, and I um, and I have to confess that this is kind of can we turn this down a little bit? Um, that there are a number of things about American legal education that I would change if I had the power, and a number of them were mentioned. Um, some aspects, maybe many, of ABA accreditation, some aspects of um, bar exams, certainly the leftward tilt of law schools. Um, but let me put all that to the side and begin with um, with a few points that are, I think, good about the American legal system, and then um, and then something about what I expected to hear today. First of all, I think the American legal system is, with all its flaws, the best in the world. Um, this is related as both cause and effect to the. Um, success of the American economy. I, uh, I think our markets work because the law makes them transparent and punishes fraud, and I think our government is the world's most successful example of a liberal constitutional democracy, and that has everything to do with our legal system. So, so that's a good thing. Um, for this reason, or um, uh, maybe it's the other way around, I think that American legal education is one of our most successful exports. Um, most American law schools now have, in addition to a JD program, an LLM program, which is, which is designed to appeal almost entirely to foreign students. Um, most have no trouble filling them. Boston College came late to this game. We just started one a year ago. Um, I mean, our first set of LLM students arrived this fall, and we found that uh, although we had no prior experience and virtually no marketing effort other than slapping something up on the web and making a few visits that we got 16 people applying for every seat in the class from outside the country. Um, it's not hard to understand why. Uh, foreign lawyers in, in Tokyo and Tel Aviv and Rio um, whose clients are bond traders or software engineers or, or um, run oil companies or um, all want to do business with uh, with American clients um, and their lawyers need to understand how we do accounting and securities and intellectual property and all the other aspects of our thing. So people want to buy American legal education and if they can't buy it then like the Japanese they want to duplicate it on their on their own ground. So so something is going right. I'll, I'll get to what's going wrong. But, um, but something's going right. Or, or here's another way of making the same point. Um, consider the the meteoric rise in the last two years of this group called the International Association of Law Schools, which replicates on a world scale the AALS. The IALS began in 2005 um, to, imp to improve mutual understanding among the world's legal systems, or more precisely among the world's systems of legal education. Um, no player was more important in bringing it into being than the ALS and its president, executive director, and board, and so on. Um, the IALS was incorporated in the District of Columbia, and for the first few years of its 
existence. It will be headquartered at the Association of American Law Schools. Um, it now has 150 members, and most of them, just barely, but a majority, are foreign um, law schools. Um, in fact, this was predictable in advance, and when they designed the constitution of it, they um, intentionally arranged it so that um, American law schools wouldn't dominate um, because the gravitational pull of American legal education was so strong that everybody knew that they were just going to suck the whole thing into, um, into somewhere in the United States. So, but the reason is that people want to know how and what we do in American law schools. So, again, on the good news, um, it's really, something is really working. Or consider the same issue from uh, an internal perspective, from inside the American market. Why do you suppose that um, every year thousands of young people are willing to go into debt, 80 to to $100,000 a year, to get a law degree from an American institution? It's not because they're stupid. Um, the short answer is because it's worth it as a gamble, anyway. Um, New York City law firms pay starting associates 160000 bucks, and if you're careful, you can pay your debt off in four years, and after that, you've got increased earning power for the rest of your life. So, so it, um, it's, it's worth it to buy some of that. Okay, now, so that's the good part. Now let me talk about the complications. There are two standard objections to this scenario. One is that not every law school graduate can land a job at Kerbath. Um, and the other is that the cost of legal education is unnecessarily high. And this is what I came expecting to hear today, and George didn't disappoint me in, in this regard. It's unnecessarily high because, um, complete the sentence, it's the fault of regulators like the ABA and the ALS. And, okay, so I'll focus my remarks as ALS president on the second point. Um, I think it's false. I mean, not the unnecessarily high part, but the because part. Um, so what I want to talk about is the because part. The cost of legal education has risen, as Maimon said, much faster than the cost of living for the last 50 years. Maimon said uh, treble the cost of, um, of um, inflation since 1980. I think that's probably about right. Um, the chief ingredient in the cost of legal education is salaries. Um, so you might be inclined to go the rest of the way that, uh, that Maima went, but it's not. It's not wow. the case that law professors and law school staff make too much. They make less than our students who graduated in May. It's, you know, I mean, we make more than Judge Easterbrook, but that's because he's ferociously underpaid, but, I, but it's not because we're making too much money. Sure, we make more than English teachers, but, but people who teach finance in business schools make more than English teachers, too. It's because the market will pay that um, set of knowledge and skills a lot more money, and it's, so it's not because we're overpaid. It is because there's a lot more of them, and this is why the cost of legal education is going up. There's a lot more of them relative to the number of students in 1960. Boston College had 16 full-time law teachers and a student-faculty ratio of roughly 30 to 1 um, at Boston College and all other American law schools. The student-faculty ratio has been steadily um, declining since then. The tipping point, that is to say, the point at which tuition no longer, no longer covered the cost of law professors was roughly 1980. That's, Maimon is exactly right about that. Um, today, Boston College has 52 regular faculty. In five or six years, we'll have 62 regular faculty. Today, our student-faculty ratio is 11 to 1. Yale's is 8 or 9 to 1. 
Um, and something like this is true at other law schools. Um, why? Well, um, I, I think you all will understand this, although lay people often don't. It's because um, the amount of law that we teach has grown at exactly the same rate. If you think about, let's take 1960. In 19, take the size of the United States Code in 1960. It was roughly this big. Um, the size of the United States Code is roughly three times as big nowadays. Um, I, I mean, in linear feet. I mean this in the most literal sense, <laughs> keeping, keeping font constant. Uh, same thing with the Code of Federal Regulations. In 1960, for example, um, civil rights law was basically Brown against the Board of Education plus Eisenhower's 1957 Civil Rights Act. In 1960, the environment had not been invented. We didn't have, we didn't have an EPA. We didn't have a Clean Air Act. We didn't have a Clean Water Act. We didn't have a federal insecticide, fungicide, and rodenticide act. We didn't have a free roaming wild horses and burrows act. We didn't have the Ocean Dumping Act and so on. Um, so, uh, um, we didn't have laws against employment discrimination. It was 64 when we got Title VII. Um, we didn't have the Voting Rights Act. We didn't have a Fair Housing Act until 68. We didn't have Title IX. Girls didn't play sports until 1972. Um, and we didn't have laws against age discrimination. We didn't have a World Trade Organization because the world hadn't been invented. There wasn't much, <laughs> wasn't much trade. We didn't have a Digital Millennium Copyright Act because computers hadn't been invented. It, uh, so it's not even that the law itself is unnecessary. The law is the way we um, you know, direct traffic in the world. It's a, uh, you know, contrary to what you read in the popular press about how lawyers are a plague and the law is a bad thing because they're thinking about plaintiff's lawyers suing about hot coffee at McDonald's. The fact is that it's a very good thing that we have a lot more laws. Um, as the world becomes complex, directing traffic in the world uh, and making things come out even or about right is what is the work that the law does. And so as the world becomes more complex, we get a lot more law. And as we get a lot more law, well, uh, think of this analogy. But well, this is an analogy. This is a fact. I, I've, I've spent a lot of time reading these course catalogs. Boston College opened its doors in 1929. And in 1929, um, we could basically teach um, our students at Boston College Law School in three classrooms, first, second, and third years, because everybody took the same thing. There were two electives that you could have. And the reason was that in 1929, a much more primitive era before the New Deal than 1960, everybody took the same thing. And it wasn't just because um, that was all we could manage to offer. It's because that's all there was. It was actually nearly roughly possible for lawyers in 1929 to know all the law there was. Um, it's gone from, you know, two elective courses to a point today where we have 160 elective courses and Harvard has God knows how many, probably twice as many as that. But, um, but so there just is um, that much more law and law schools have gone, well, so here's the analogy I was going to draw. Think about um, university education in the 14th century. Uh, there would be a trivium and a quadrivium and people could take the same course of study. But when you send your kid to college nowadays, it's inconceivable. Nobody even imagines. People don't even think of the idea that they should take everything they go to law school and they pick something and uh, I mean to college and they you know it might be Italian or 
art or economics or finance or physics or whatever but you know that's what law schools have become and there's no going back it's and it's also not fake I mean it's all the laws that we're trying to teach are um, you know are there that's why the cost has gone up there's no going back with it and um, I don't I, I um, it may seem inconsistent with this for me to say I, I like Rod's um, proposed idea I think it would be fun to have a law school like that but understand um, it's not in one way it's swimming against the tide rather than with it um, we have a world in which there is so much more law than there used to be that nobody can possibly ever learn it um, the practicing bar will often say well so we ought to let people out earlier duh no I, I mean really it ought to take longer to get better acquainted but we can never catch up with it so you know at some point we've got to stop and you know, maybe two years is as good as three but, I, but that's a comment on the side okay now that's about the faculty and why it's more expensive um, or partly why it's more expensive because the other half of why it's more expensive is that the staff at law schools has grown at about the same rate I don't have the 60 numbers but I, but I know that at BC in 1950 we had a staff of eight um, you know, not counting the faculty and so on. And today we have a staff of 71, 72, I think, beginning the first of the year. Um, now, why is that? Well, some of it has a causal link to faculty growth. Libraries have grown at exactly the same rate and for exactly the same reasons as faculty has grown, because they store the law. So as it gets bigger, they get bigger, and you need more librarians, plus there's the IP stuff. Uh, secretarial staff grow with faculty. In fact, they've been they've grown at a less rapid rate because we have shifted over to computers from secretaries, and so most of us do our own typing now. So the secretarial staff grows incrementally, but the IT, uh, you know, the IT, they, those guys, you know, the computer guys grow um, fast. So that's a, that's another growth. Um, some of the staff growth is unrelated to faculty growth, but it's driven by the market and not by ABA regulations. Um, consider student services. The number of people um, advising and counseling students um, about admissions, financial aid, course selection, personal problems, career choices, and so on has grown a lot since 1960 or even since 1980. Um, what we're seeing is um, competition in services rather than in price. And why is that? Um, I think the reason is because it's worth it. I think it's related to the first point. Law school costs a lot of money. People invest that much in it uh, in the hopes of getting a job at Cravath or someplace equally attractive. And if there are career services officers that we can deploy to get them that, then that's what people that's what people want. So, um, well, those are some thoughts. I, I'm not sure where. Well, no, here uh, my last uh, close. Let me close with my last thought. Um, I was about to say I'm not sure where all this money is coming from, but of course um, you all know where this money is coming from. I mean, some of it's coming out of the students' hide, but but as I said, we long since 1980 maybe passed that point, and it was roughly in 1980. Um, let's see, I uh, I was at the University of Kentucky. One of my best friends, Carol Stevens, was the placement director at UK and started to do some alumni things. And Carol, in 1980, was hired by the Yale Law School to be their director of development. He worked for Guido Calabresi and then for the other guys. Subsequently, raised 100 million bucks for Yale Law School. But you, you know, you can imagine um, the business of of raising money, you know, private gifts 
by Yale Law School was in such a primitive state in 1980 that they hired my friend at UK, who you know never been out. So it was a new thing there. But nowadays, uh, the money's coming from um, the kind of people who endow colleges and universities. That's how we're paying for it. Or at least, and this is my very last thought, um, at least uh, you know take the line up the law schools in the rankings and draw a line somewhere. I'm not sure exactly where. The people above the line are raising all that money and the people below the line are probably going to have to do something different. So. Thank you very much. The panel will have a round of comments and then we'll be open to questions from the floor. Professor Shepard. Just a, some musings on various of the things that were said. Uh, the the, the there was this thought that perhaps it was a good development that all law schools now are compelled by accreditation to engage in lots of research, which effectively is what, what's happened. But, but probably if there was no accreditation, there'd still be a lot of research that would be being done, but it'd probably be at 30 or so schools and the rest would not do as much. And that would probably be the efficient level if one has ever read some of the articles in the lower ranked law reviews. Um, the, because the, what this is doing is requiring students, forcing them to pay for research that probably uh, shouldn't be done anyways. So um, there should be more cheap law schools on the, on the lines of the unaccredited law schools in California, which uh, charge about half as much. Um, there's an expectation of more diversity, but accreditation doesn't really allow it to occur, and it'll be interesting to see what the reaction will be of ABA accreditors if, if we edge toward eliminating the third year of law schools. I expect that, that will not be a favorable reaction. Um, and the idea that the rise of accreditation allowed lawyers to be the kind of people who would decide things, that's, I think, not right. Uh, lawyers have always decided things. And, in fact, in recent decades, the proportion of lawyers in our legislatures and in presence has declined compared to what it used to be. As accreditation has risen, the lawyers have become less prepared to be leaders than they were before. There were lots of leaders who were lawyers before accreditation. Think of Abraham Lincoln, who didn't go to law school. Think of our founding fathers. So I don't think that it's the, the reason lawyers, um, there's two reasons that lawyers uh, end up being leaders. <clears throat> First is that they know how to get stuff done. And second is that it's one of the careers that you can take time off to be a leader and not really hurt your career. Um, let's see. The, the, the thought that the excess costs are, are, are worth it. Um, I mean, just think, of, uh, costs are too high, but... Maybe there is a market for law professors. Their, their, their uh, salaries have increased, but the accreditation requirements effectively prevent uh, full-time law professors being from being replaced by adjuncts. In California, unaccredited law schools, a lot of them are based on having practitioners who actually practice law and, and know how law is practiced, allowing them to teach the classes, allowing them to, to pass on their expertise rather than requiring these eggheads who maybe clerk for the Supreme Court and and practiced one year as, a, as an associate in a law firm, and then they somehow feel that they know how to teach, teach law classes. So, I, I, and, and libraries, the amount of law has increased, but at the same time, it's become possible to store all of the law in your thumb drive. So, why do we require these large uh, law libraries that, with requirements of large numbers of paper volumes when, when uh, it's all on your computer? Um, And maybe costs should go up for a few of the law schools. And that would probably happen if accreditation requirements, borrower exam requirements were eliminated. Just look at the, at the, uh, the business school model. There, there's some 
elite business schools where lots of good research is done and leaders are trained, but they don't need to go up for everybody because they're, they're, there's lots of more law and some people need to learn it, but not everybody needs to learn it. Not everybody is going to be a leader. Not everybody is going to be doing complicated environmental litigation. Not everybody is going to be doing some complicated merger and acquisition. There's lots of people who are going to be doing wills. Most lawyers don't get paid that much. Most lawyers aren't doing that complicated stuff, and our legal accreditation system requires everybody to get the complicated legal education when a much cheaper, simpler legal education would probably do just fine. Thank you. Mr. Borchall? Um, a few random, also random comments. Um, picking up on Professor Shepard's point at the end just now, um, John suggested rightly that there's three times the amount of law than there used to be, and I'm sure that's right, or, or that it's even more than that. Um, I'm somewhat skeptical that, I mean, that's a, that's a, it's a cute thing to point out, and it's true. Um, whether that affects or should affect legal education, I'm somewhat more skeptical. It seems to me that the, what lawyers do, to some extent, whether they're doing simple work or complicated work, um, what they overwhelmingly need to do in order to do that work well is to be able to think like lawyers. Um, and it seems to me that, that um, you learn to do that, essentially, you can learn to do that, you have to learn to do that with essentially the same amount of material, whether there's three times as much law or as much law or a, a third as much law uh, in terms of um, running feet, what's the um, number of bookshelf feet of, of uh, U.S. code annotated. Um, I've often thought that, that and it, it sort of goes in the opposite direction of, of, of Dean Smala, that if I were dean of a law school, uh, which is somewhat uh, less likely than my winning the Iowa primary yesterday. Um, but uh, I'd like to try to do something along the lines of what St. John's College does for liberal arts education, namely to, um, to have not a trivium and a quadrivium, but a, but a shared program uh, of legal education for all law students, essentially over the course of the legal of law school of three years. Um, I think it, uh, if, if I were going to college now, or if I had a kid going to college, I would urge St. John's College on that kid. That's, that's what St. John's in Annapolis and I guess in Santa Fe does with, with um, liberal arts education. I think it's a terrific program. Columbia used to do it where I went to college. They don't do it anymore. Chicago used to do it. They don't really do it anymore. St. John's does it. Um, the amount of knowledge has presumably grown even more in the last few generations than the amount of law has. Um, but I don't think that's an argument against uh, a, 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 um, a, a shared and non-specialized um, program of legal, legal education that is about how to, how to, how to think. Uh, rather than about uh, the details of the, the, the Bison Protection Act. Um, staff, second random comment, unrelated. Uh, staff growth, driven by the market, um, I think there would at least be from the economists here an argument that, well, there's competition in services because price competition is uh, suppressed by the cartel. Um, and um, it seems to me there may be some genuine market pressure for uh, more student services, more staff. Uh, law school staff have certainly grown at my school, at other schools, uh, uh, enormously in the past couple of generations. Whether there would be in a less cartelized, uh, less regulated environment um, is, is a moot question, perhaps. Uh, finally, uh, in, is, who's paying for it? Uh, John suggested, well, it's endowment. Um, and or it's, it's the, the sources of money that are endowing, endowing uh, education generally. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that's true at Yale. 
um, and at Harvard and at a handful of other places. I wonder um, uh, uh, whether it's true at BC. I, th I think it's not true um, at the, the bottom 150 law schools. Um, in, in, at, at most law schools, most of which, I mean, I think that the, the point of a lot of the panel today is that most law schools, most accredited law schools, university law schools across the country are essentially trying to do much the same thing that the elite schools do. Uh, and that that's the development of the past few decades. It's an interesting development. I think in many ways it's an admir admirable development. I think it's a threatened development. Um, it seems to me that at most law schools, uh, most of the, in U.S. News and World Report terms, and perhaps otherwise, um, lesser law schools, uh, it is coming out of student hides. Um, John conceded in his sort of last sentence just now that the, the bottom law schools will be facing a lot of pressure to change, um, whether for better or for worse. I think that's right. Dean Garvey, you want to jump in? I'll take you out of order. Oh, I'm sorry. Was there a No, go ahead. Um, I, uh, I, I've learned, um, I, I'm actually just the president-elect of the ALS. I, I take office tomorrow. But I, I have learned that I have two great powers as president. One is I get to appoint all the committees, and that's really an unfettered power. Um, and the other is I get to set the theme of the association for the year. And I mention this because I have a lot of sympathy for um, Maimon's remarks just now, as I always do for everything that Maimon says. Um, uh, in, in particular, I, if, you, if you have nothing to do tomorrow, and, and I'm sure most of you have never done this, but if you want to see what a plenary session of the AL, is that what it's called? No, it's the Generalist. Well, that meeting of the House of Representatives, go tomorrow and you can hear me talk about this. Um, I, I want to say that I think um, that institutional pluralism among law schools would be a very desirable way to think, that um, the world would be a better place if law schools were different from one another, um, partly because, um, well, it would be good for consumers in the same way that varieties of mustard are good for consumers. And in my view of the world, a St. John's, um, I mean Annapolis, um, kind of law school would be you know, a, a very welcome addition. I, I should say, though, just um, uh, to finish the thought, that not every law school should be this way. Um, let me repeat Maimon's remarks. Um, imagine uh, if we have a world in which there's, let's say, three times as much science as there was in 1980. Um, and in this world, we want to train doctors. So what we do is teach them to think like doctors. And then we turn them loose on patients after two years of medical education. I don't think that that would be a good thing for the practice of medicine. I, I do think that there are places where we have to spend more time thinking in more detail about about this, and so there's a place for that sort of work to be done, too. But, you know, in a world in which it's impossible to teach law students all the law that there is, everybody's got to make some choices, and the St. John's model is one way of making that choice, which I think would be great. Dean Small. Well, let me pick up the point on uh, there being so much law. I think it's true in many respects. It's true in the way that John described it. There's just more areas of law. It's also true in a density sense. Uh, I don't know how many of you have had the experience of being asked to look deeply into something that you are ostensibly an expert on. 
uh, and finding a whole body of law, 20 cases <laughs> that, you, that you didn't know existed that have explored in extraordinary detail something that you thought you knew, some, some, some doctrine or rule that you thought you understand, and you didn't realize the richness of the common law or constitutional law development that's, that's, that's uh, uh, formed just because of the sheer force of the number of cases that exist about that. So then the question is, what then, what then should you do? We're obviously way past the point where you could ever have uh, a number of electives that would keep up with the, either the density or the expanse of law. Uh, and what I think we find as academics and as practicing lawyers is that one of the most important skills we have is the ability to teach ourselves uh, constantly uh, uh, new areas. Uh, if we go to the kind of model that I'm suggesting as one possible form of experimentation, doesn't mean you teach less content. Indeed, you might teach more. You certainly could teach exactly the same amount. That is to say, you could imagine for any one law student, we could somehow put them into a machine and measure the entire quantum of content that they were exposed to in the third year and say, okay, we're going to give you exactly that same amount of content, but it'll be delivered in a different way. It'll, it won't be presented through a casebook. It won't be presented in a classroom setting. We'll come up with other ways to present it to you where more things will be going on, where, you'll, where other skills will also be engaged. Uh, and indeed, if you think of it that way, you could then invite almost the entire expanse of law because any little nook and cranny of this vast expanse is a nominee for one of those experiences. That's always balanced, I suppose, for all of us against some sense that there are prob there's probably some canon roughly reflected in the first year courses and another handful of other courses that we do feel some sort of professional obligation to expose most of our law students to. But beyond that, beyond that, I don't know how many courses that is, eight, nine, ten courses. Uh, there's a thousand we could imagine, uh, and it's l largely an accident of who happens to be on the faculty and the seminars they design, what happens to be in the curriculum now. Uh, curriculum now. That's good, but it doesn't mean that the manner in which students are exposed to that ought to be the traditional manner. I think we have been not ambitious enough as educators in trying to uh, click on more cylinders. Uh, I think we do a brilliant job of teaching students to think like lawyers in all the ways that have been described. We do an adequate job of exposing them to basic elements of legal doctrine. Uh, but there's a lot more to being a lawyer than that, and I'm not sure why we just leave all of that to the profession and don't feel some sense of obligation as legal educators to be involved. I don't think any of that detracts from our capacity to do all of the other important things that my colleagues have described, the things that most of us love the most, uh, uh, our scholarship, our public service, our teaching of, uh, of leadership, our sense that the students should have some sense of civic engagement as part of their concept of being a professional. Uh, I think that's all compatible with more creativity in the way in which we think about our educational mission. things. One is, um, it's a, I mean, it's an endemic uh, sort of problem in the legal academy that all kinds of theories get floated without data. And um, 
I think we're seeing you know that in regard to this topic as well. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not aware that doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but I'm not aware of any serious, uh, rigorous investigation of what the question of what the effect of accreditation and licensing requirements it has been on the price and quality of legal services. Uh, surely there's effects. There's, that, there's no question that there are effects. But, of course, the, the interesting qu question from a social perspective is what is the effect on the margin? Um, are, you, how, uh, how much are they, are they or are they not worth whatever effects they're actually having? So we, you know, we, we, we need, I think we need to know more about this. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I think it's something that we ought to, we ought to study uh, more than, than has been studied, at least to my knowledge. Again, I could be wrong about that. Uh, related to that point, I would note that I think it would come as really quite a surprise to the average American to be told that the crisis of the American legal system is that there aren't enough lawyers. Um, there are more than a million people in the United States right now with a law degree from an American law school. That is uh, about one out of every 200 adults. Uh, you know that might uh, there, there there might be an undersupply problem, um, uh, but again uh, uh, that seems a, a counterintuitive in, in, in certain ways. And we're of course cranking out. What, John would know the actual number. What forty forty five thousand a year, right? Uh, something like that right now. Um, small, lots, but uh, in the tens of thousands, anyway. <laughs> Forty thousand, right? Yeah, about forty. I think that math was about right there. Um, and then uh, I, and then on a, a, a somewhat tangential point, but one that I don't, that I think has just sort of been just been glancingly touched on, uh, but is important to focus on here. Um, the, well, it's been noted by several of the panelists that there's a real big distinction here between, you know, the elites and everybody else. And I would say that there's actually a, a tripartite distinction here. Um, there's the elites, there's the sort of middling, you know, schools, and then there's the the, um, the bottom quarter or what have you. And I, and I think one one issue that really is pressing, having looked at some of the statistics in this regard, is to look at the people who are being admitted at the bottom tier schools. At who, who are being admitted, let's say, at the bottom of the class at the bottom tier schools, because many of those people, if you look at their LSAT and GPA scores, um, have uh, scores that predict uh, uh, that they will not pass the bar uh, with, with, uh, with considerable um, uh, confidence. In fact, there are, there are some people being admitted to lower tier schools who have qualifications uh, such that no one ever with those qualifications has ever passed the bar in the state in which um, th those people are, uh, are going to law school. Now, it seems to me that that's the kind of, speaking of transparency, I mean, that's the kind of information that uh, maybe uh, here some more regulation might be called for in terms of having to actually reveal to consumers of legal education that that's the situation that they would be going into if they're buying uh, $100,000 of, of, of educational debt. Um, so... Well, thank you very much. Before we go to questions from the floor, uh, Professor Campos has just given me an opportunity to put in a plug. As a former editor of the Journal of Law and Economics, I can encourage you all to take out subscriptions to it, or at least look at it in your extremely expensive law libraries, uh, because there is some work there on the consequences of entry control. It's kind of hard 
to do work on the consequences of entry control for lawyers and law schools because there's been no real variability. And you need variability to do empirical work. It's been a long time since there's been variability. But there are other professions, learned and otherwise, in which there has been variability. One profession that's been much studied, for example, is optometry, which has been licensed in some states at some times and not at others, is treated differently in different states. And there are arguments, of course, quite parallel to the arguments for law schools, that unless there is substantial entry control in optometry, people will be misdiagnosed, people won't get the right prescriptions for eyeglasses, glaucoma won't be found, prices will be high, and so on. And I can report that the studies of those professions in which there's been variation in entry control uniformly show that the more entry control there is, the higher the price there is, and the worse the diagnosis that's provided to patients. And I have no reason to believe that law is any different. Now, we're open to questions from the floor. Just stand up, ask a question, uh, identify yourself, and say who the question is for. And, oh, by the way, it shouldn't be necessary, but in this group it surely is. Please ask questions. These differ from speeches. Yes. Yes, Michael Lewin from Florida Coastal. It seems to me that Professor Shepard's description is a good description of the world circa 1990. Over the past 15 years, we've had a kind of prod spring, lots of new law schools, some for-profit law schools, and now we're seeing possibly an ABA move actually towards more cardinalization. Um, there's some talk spurred by the Federal Education Department requiring 80% bar pass rates, which is probably going to require third and fourth tier schools to dramatically raise some of them to raise their admission standards or go out of business. Uh, so I'm, not, so I get, I'm wondering, what's good, what do you think is going to be the effect of this on the legal academy? And I guess, Professor Shepard, I'm really most directing this question to. People, um, having bar pass rates, uh, to me, seems just like a, a really bad idea uh, as, a, as a requirement for accreditation. First, because it, it bases accreditation systems not on the quality of the law school, but just on the whim of the bar pass rate that's assigned by each individual state. So if a state feels like, hey, we're overcrowded with lawyers already, then they uh, decrease the bar pass rate, and that means that schools can no longer be accredited in that state, even if they're just as uh, good as ones in other states. Also, it'll have a, a, just a horrible effect on, on uh, m minorities, because minorities tend to have lower LSAT scores, lower bar pass rates. If you have a bar pass rate limit on law school accreditation, that'll mean that the, the ones that serve minorities will be shut down. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Judge. Um, tell you what, I'll, I'll stand up so I can see people better. I've been on the uh, faculty of Ave Maria Law School since it started in 2000. And you will find no bigger proponent of ABA accreditation standards than I. I know why they're there. My faculty colleagues know why they're there. My students and alumni know why they're there. And it seems to me that what is required to obtain provisional approval just isn't that big a deal. A law school needs a decent faculty, a decent student body, a decent facility with a decent library, and financial viability. It just doesn't seem all that hard to obtain, and it seems to me, having reviewed the record of ABA-accredited law schools and what's happened to some of them, it's almost impossible to lose it once you've got it, unless a law school voluntarily shuts down. 
So I guess my question for the panelists is, um, I, I, just, I reject the notion that law schools operate as a cartel because that suggests that law schools use the ABA and other um, use the ABA as a form of, of, of uh, creating barriers to entry in order to minimize competition. Um, wh which of the ABA, the current ABA accreditation standards is not reasonable, it's not what we would expect from any law school that wants to provide a decent program of legal education? Um, the, a host of them are, are unreasonable. If one wants to be able to provide law uh, training to, in, in an affordable way for those who aren't going to be able to get jobs at Cravath, because of accreditation, it about doubles the cost of legal training. And for those who can expect only to work for modest fees, that makes a law school unaffordable, meaning they can't go at all. So it, may, it puts law school, law school training out of the reach and of, of many. And there are too few lawyers in our country. You can just see that by the fact that the cheapest lawyer you can get is about 50 or $60 an hour. That's too expensive for, I might say, most people to be able to afford uh, legal services. And, and in this society in which their law has become much more pervasive, it's more linear feet, there's lots more legal rights that people have, even if they're poor, you need lawyers to vindicate them, and there just aren't those lawyers available for many. And so we need law schools, and we need cheap ones, and accreditation makes them too expensive. And just look at how much they're cheaper in California. Hi, uh, Ron Colombo from Hofstra. Uh, two, two observations I'd like to turn into a question I'd like someone to respond to regarding whether or not law schools are acting as a cartel. Um, one would be, when I think of antitrust in general, uh, a, thing, a thing that comes to mind is the concept of a, a product substitute. And so if someone applying to law school, they're not bound to go to law school. They could apply to medical school, business school. They could choose any other career path, right? So if it's, I'm trying to understand, there seem to be product substitutes for legal education, namely other forms of education. And doesn't that undercut the theory that this is some nefarious, uh, you know, monopoly type situation? And the second datum I'd like to bring up would be, it seems as though law schools, tuition, I think, prices are a problematic issue. But tuition prices seem to be what the market will bear. I, I, I would like to know if there's any data on how associate salaries have increased since 1980, along with the law school tuition. I mean, Dean Garvey touched on this briefly, but uh, it seems to me as though uh, tuition increases are mirroring, to a large degree, the expected payout uh, of a law school, uh, of, of a legal career. And so, to me, those two bits of data seem to undermine the, the theory that there's a, a cartel here. I, I'd appreciate anyone's uh, response to that. Let, let, let me just say a few things. I mean, this is basically a question about antitrust economics. If, if you take my example about licensure rules for optometrists, we would not expect a change in licensure rules for dentists to, expect the pro to affect the price and availability of optometry services. There are the demands for them are quite distinct, and the products are not complementary. Although I suppose if you have no teeth in the end, you won't be able to eat, and so you won't need optometrist services. Uh, and similarly, the, the fact that somebody could go to, to medical school doesn't mean that they, there is no effective entry control in, in law school. The, the second kind of standard antitrust response that one has to have is you have to remember that often entry control can cause changes in quality. 
And the standard example that's often given these days is the airline industry. At a time when in the 60s and 70s there was entry control, airplanes flew half empty and with wonderful piano lounges. Uh, and I, I was almost expecting Dean Garvey to praise the piano lounge uh, on the ground that, after all, with entry control, we can, we can afford a, a, a greatly increased number of professors. And I was just hearing piano lounges, piano lounges. It's, it's a consequence of entry control, surely, that there will be an improvement in quality in the institution. But the economic question is whether that improvement in quality is worth the price that is being charged. And usually what one discovers, and we've had lots of episodes of regulation and deregulation of other businesses in the United States, usually what one discovers, and certainly did in airlines, is that the flying public is not willing to pay for the piano lounges. They, that increment of quality could have survived, but when competition broke out because there were when the entry restrictions were lifted, it did not survive. Uh, now, you can imagine a different world in which it would have survived, uh, but it doesn't happen to be the one we occupy right now. Anybody? What, one very quick addendum. You, you talked about what the market will bear. I'm not as confident that the market will bear um, the continuing escalation in tuition prices. I don't have the statistics at the top of my head, but it is true that the salaries of incoming associates at elite Wall Street firms have kept pace roughly with tuition prices. But that's not true necessarily of the rest of the market. It's certainly not true of uh, the salaries paid to uh, state's attorneys uh, in Cook County or uh, Commonwealth's attorneys in uh, Virginia. It's not true of uh, many public interest uh, uh, legal jobs. And it's not true uh, with regard to the vast number of uh, small to medium-sized law firms uh, outside of the major metropolitan areas in the United States. Those salaries uh, have not kept pace with uh, the escalation in, uh, in uh, um, law school tuitions. And just anecdotally, as a dean traveling around the country meeting alumni in lots of different legal markets, Atlanta and Los Angeles and so on. Uh, I, hear at, uh, I hear complaints at many law firms about clients not willing to allow uh, first and second and third year associates on their matters. Clients like Walmart and Exxon and so on saying, I'm sorry, we won't subsidize uh, the training of lawyers at these high prices uh, in, in your firms. And I hear that in, in a number of markets, uh, law firms seriously discussing internally the possibility of no longer hiring law students and simply looking uh, to staff uh, their uh, firms uh, from people that they can handpick, uh, you know, who are in the lateral market, have been practicing for three or four or five or six years. So I'm not absolutely confident that we can go on indefinitely in the way, way that we have. It may be that there's a small number of firms right here in Manhattan uh, that can continue to churn away at, at, at these levels, but I think there might be some correctives, and at some point, the, it seems to me, law, law schools have to face that. There could be a, a sort of a break in the bubble, not unlike we just saw in the housing markets. from the University of Detroit Mercy, and I point that out to uh, emphasize that I've only been there for one semester, and all of the comments I make will come from experiences prior to that. 
Uh, having been on the faculty at three new law schools, including an associate dean at one and founding dean of another, um, I think I have a perspective on the difficulty or lack of difficulty in terms of getting through the accreditation processes and, and, and entering into the cartel. And I'd have to say that I, I felt like there was uh, probably an exaggeration of how difficult that is. Uh, yes, there are some requirements, but there are many things that are not that difficult to take care of. And, and frankly, the, the, the reality is there are students lined up all over the place who are willing to pay the freight that, that you can use to bootstrap yourself into the accreditation process and, and, and become a member of the cartel, I suppose. Having said that, I, I, I think there are some legitimate concerns about whether the bubble will burst. And I think there are some legit, legitimate concerns about the costs the line that Dean Garvey talked about is certain schools above the line and certain ones below. And I guess my fear is that, that we didn't get a lot of perspective from below-the-line schools. Uh, you know, having been at a school, uh, again, in my past where once discussing the U.S. News and World Report uh, rankings that had just come out, I said, look, let's be honest. The reason we're a fourth-tier school is because there is no fifth-tier uh, you know, there are schools like that, and, and, and you know, those schools are, are going, uh, that was a visiting appointment, I suppose I should know, but anyway, <laughs> nonetheless, um, I will not name names, <laughs> at least in public, um, but I, I think there are a number of concerns that, that we need to address that, that perhaps interconnect, but, but go beyond some of the things we've talked about here. I, I think the accreditation standards do create some costs, but I think we've overemphasized those. Uh, clearly, there are a lot of places starting law schools. There are investors who expect to make enormous amounts of money and perhaps are making money. There are others who are making money off of this. There are universities making enormous amounts of money in overhead, which is a topic that didn't come up at, at all, but seems to be a significant factor, certainly in my experience, in the cost of legal education. Uh, and then we do have the fact that, again, I didn't think we, we addressed much here as to uh, faculty members, frankly, killing the goose that lays the golden egg, that, that there's, there's a level of greed that probably doesn't connect entirely with the growth of the law. I, I, the, the U.S. code may be vastly larger, but I'm not sure where it picked up law and X and there's a lot of law and X law and the banana and law and the grapefruit and sometimes we don't even bother with the law it's just the grapefruit and the banana um, and, and I guess my question is how do those factors play in in the minds of, of the panel members in terms of university overhead and faculty governance to some extent run amok and the pressures on fundraising at law schools, one other thing to throw into the mix, the pressures for fundraising that have, I think, in, in many instances, taken the dean out of a leadership role uh, so that the faculty is a democratic body and there's no, there's no adult supervision. Sounds like a natural for our deans. John? Um. Can I say something? 
something nasty sure. first? Yeah, I'd love it. Yeah, if I, really, <laughs> I really hate this like law and the banana and law and the grapefruit kind of uh, slamming of being intellectually serious inside of law schools. I mean, after all, the reason we're having a discussion about this entire subject is because we have people who have backgrounds and fields like economics and uh, who are capable of of analyzing uh, a, a, a social phenomenon like this in an intellectually sophisticated way. If, if all we had was people who knew you know, how to plead a case by the standards of you know, 18th century uh, English lawyers, I don't think we'd be having a, a discussion about whether we would have a cartelized institution. Now, that doesn't mean that everything that goes on in law schools in terms of, of scholarship and intellectual inquiry and all that is, uh, is good or ought to be subsidized or whatever, but I really I get annoyed by this kind of uh, knee-jerk uh, running down of attempting to do something intellectually serious inside of a law school, especially because I don't think that law as a subject is any less worthy of an intellectually serious and interdisciplinary kind of approach uh, than uh, other uh, spheres of uh, human activity and inquiry. Oh, uh, well, uh, let me respond to the part about the dean's job. I, um, I, uh, what you say is exactly right. I, um, my job has changed a lot in the last ten years. I, I know I, I'm, I'm an avid reader of old catalogs and also of old books of faculty minutes. And I, um, it's, it's really fun to read the minutes from the years um, 50 years ago when Bob Drynan was the dean at Boston College. They didn't really do much besides, um, you know, occasionally supervise the faculty and um, hang around the school because tuition covered all the work there was to do. Uh, my, um, uh, two things have happened, or, or one thing uh, has happened since then. The size of the faculty and the size of the staff have grown enormously relative to the size of the student body. Um, that just means it's a bigger operation to run. And so what we have is um, middle management at, at law schools nowadays. And I don't think that's going to turn around. I, I should say that it's not all that different from, um, well, it is different in one way. But uh, in one way, it's similar to the jobs of my counterpart as the Dean of Arts and Sciences. You know, what, what he's got is departments underneath him and department chairs. That's middle management. What I've got that he doesn't is I've got to raise money. <laughs> And I also run an admissions and career services office. So it's, it's, a, it's a big job. It's like running a small company or like being the president of a small uh, college, except that you have to report up as well as down. Tim Gregory from St. John's. Um, a lot of law already deeply discounting their tuition. Do any of you think that the Harvard College recent announcement so how they're recalibrating their financial package, i.e. 10% maximum uh, payment by parents making up to $180,000 a year. I think that that might have any effect. I think that might have any effect in any of the law schools, number one. And number two, I guess a more composite question, uh, of the deans, but of anyone who perhaps perceive themselves as a per day, uh, let's say you start to identify faculty candidates with sterling credentials who said, look, I'm either independently wealthy or taken about poverty. But here's the good news. I'll work for you for $5,000 a year. And you can find a number of candidates uh, with all the academic merit badges. Could you get those folks hired past your faculty, as presently? 
Do you want to go I'm first? I'm not sure though? I understand the question. I can have faculty as good as we have now and for five thousand dollars? Sure we can get that done. <laughs> Uh, it, it would make no difference one way or another at BC. Uh, that is to say that the faculty don't take responsibility for the financial management of the place. So um, if, if there were no difference, there would be it would mean it would be a matter of indifference to them. But they wouldn't they wouldn't think, hey, John, this is a good deal. Let's get this uh, let's get this lady. She's a whole lot cheaper. So, so if the next ten hires go to work for you for a total of fifty thousand dollars a year, no benefits. It will affect the dean's salary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying that I wouldn't take account of it, but the faculty wouldn't vote differently. Well, one, one point on the, on the discounting, uh, and it's slightly oblique perhaps to your question, but maybe, maybe not completely oblique to it, and, and that's the, the, um, the, there is the, the, the sticker price at many law schools is very high, as we've discussed. But there's a lot of discounting. Um, the pressure on that discounting, in particular from the U.S. News rating, is to discount not on the basis of need, um, financial need, but on the basis of uh, credential quality. Um, because it figures into U.S. News uh, ratings of the, the LSAT and college grades of your students, so that there's a, the, the, a growing impulse uh, to buy students who are um, entering students whose um, numbers will uh, help your U.S. News ratings rather than to do that discounting in behalf of people who financially need it. Um, that is... What the significance of that is to um, the cartel is we could talk about, um, but I think it, 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 it does little to ameliorate this potential sense among a lot of customers that this is a hell of an expensive proposition and that there isn't a lot of mercy to be had even from such cost-cutting as the law schools do. intrigued by the, the sort of suggestion about radical institutional diversity, Dean Smola's new plan and Maiman, you had a different, a very different St. John's plan. Um, so I, I would imagine if this is coming, I, I don't know if it is or not, there'd be a lot of sorting over time among students and faculty and also donors. And I wondered if you could both speak to what are the students and faculty that would be attracted to your plans and whether or not they are the kinds of students and faculty that you would like to have at your institutions. I'll go first very quickly. I think that it is likely that the kind of model that I've produced would make it more attractive for our law school to hire people who are intellectually as strong as ever, but who have been in the profession for a longer period of time. And so rather than hire people that have never practiced, perhaps clerked in the Supreme Court or clerked on the Federal Court of Appeals, or practiced for one year or two years at an elite firm, uh, we would be more interested in someone who had the same credentials but had been a U.S. attorney for 10 years or uh, been, been in the profession longer because they bring a wider range of experience and skill sets. Uh, that's my instinct on the, on the faculty side. Who knows? On the, on the student side, 
uh, I heard a wonderful uh, uh, insight. I think it came from a piece in the New Yorker magazine comparing the recruiting uh, techniques of a modeling agency with the Marine Corps. And the modeling agency basically wants beauty, and then it will do things to market your beauty, but you come beautiful, and then they take it and help you sell that. Uh, whereas the Marine Corps, you know, is looking for a few good men. They're not, they're, they're, their idea is we're going to be rigorous and tough and mean, and we sort of want you unformed, and we will form you and turn you into something. And, and I suspect that the, the model I'm describing is more like the Marine Corps. It's sort of we're looking for a few good lawyers. And the, the way it would sort itself out is that people that, that somehow feel they want some blend of uh, the sort of classic intellectual techniques of law school and some, some application of those techniques in contextual settings would, would, would find it attractive. Uh, I hope it wouldn't diminish the intellectual rigor uh, and seriousness and uh, creativity of the school. And that's an interesting question, whether you can tinker with the model and sacrifice um, uh, some of the wonderful parts of being in a, uh, being a serious intellectual component of university, the kinds of things that um, some of my colleagues have talked about. And I hope we wouldn't have to sacrifice that. Uh, we wouldn't want to do that. And, and, and if we thought we were doing that, we'd probably abandon the experiment and, and, and become St. John's. <laughs> I, what, what Rob is, is talking about and doing uh, seems to me fa absolutely fascinating. Um, and it, it, it does seem to me that in a way it's a kind of revival of, the, of an idea that, that uh, seemed to have a lot of strength 30 years ago and to some extent um, for various reasons largely petered out since then, which is the idea of clinical legal education. That was, that was thought to be the coming thing in the late 1970s. Um, CUNY Law School in New York was going to do that sort of full-time. Some other law schools were going to do it. Um, it didn't um, fulfill, I think, the, the ambitions that its, that its proponents had for it. Uh, partly that's because it's expensive. Um, and maybe, um, you know, Rod can produce the money to do that and to do it well in a way that the first generation of people who tried to do it couldn't. Um, the, the other possibility is that, that, that it looks better I mean, that it looks better, that the idea looks better than it is. Um, that the um, metaphor of clinical medical education applied to legal education, which sounds appealing, um, uh, uh, may not work as well um, for what you need to do and be as a good lawyer. Um, uh, and I think that's, you know, that's controversial and it, it'll be, it, it's just, you know, a fascinating experiment. Here it's only a partial experiment because two-thirds of your program is still going to be a traditional program. And, and one very, very quick, uh, your point's well taken. I think what we will see emerge is not, is not that clinical model because the clinical model involves servicing actual real clients. And part of the reason it's expensive is you then have a fiduciary obligation to do that extremely well. This will, I think, be 80% simulated experiences. So it's a lot cheaper to train a pilot on a simulator than, than on the actual plane. And I hope we capture some of the educational value, but more cheaply. So, so I think a lot of clinical programs over the decades have been simulated programs. Ours at my, at my law school uh, overwhelmingly is. I think a, a lot of them are. Uh, what would, what would St. John's, uh, St. John's uh, attract? Um, I think it would attract a more academically minded faculty and potentially a more academically minded student body, though I think there's a practical side to it as well, at least on the bar exam side. Um, uh, there is some experience now developing that the more you um, de-require the curriculum, uh, the uh, lower your bar passage rates are. 
Uh, now, a bar exam is somewhat more academic than actual practice, and Rod might say, you know, that's a, that's a, to, to, to go from uh, an academic program to an ac academic exam and then say, well, that should be the test of what your program should be rather than the profession mm, is, 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 I mean, Rod might say, you know, fallacious. Um, but certainly, it, as, as, a, as a practical rather than an idealistic uh, academic idea, uh, the idea that a, that a, a rigorous and very largely required program of basic law rather than overwhelmingly of electives um, conduces to at least better bar passage, I think there's some growing evidence for. Bert Lazaro, University of San Diego. Um, during my teaching career, I think of a number of institutions that have tried to distinguish themselves um, Antioch, Northeastern, uh, Cooney, um, George Mason. Um, uh, and I am wondering whether anyone can think of any institutions that have managed to distinguish themselves and to move out of uh, their place in the pecking order, whatever it might have been. Uh, in other words, have they successfully distinguished themselves? Have our representatives from George Mason uh, fled? I saw a couple of, a couple of them, but one might think that George Mason certainly fits that category. I, I don't want to speak to the others. I mean, Antioch went out of business, so in a sense, it changed Gilead? its point in the. In the Ilya Solman back there, if I see correctly. Sorry. I mean, I, I guess I would say. Uh, at least if you go by U.S. news rankings or even by other academic rankings, yes, I think GMU was successful. Uh, I think we're a little bit less distinctive than perhaps we were 15 or 20 years ago, but some of that is because other schools have incorporated law and economics into their work more, does, in effect, adopting some of the innovations that uh, GMU was one of the pioneers of. Thank you. I'm Dan Sobotnik Turo. Um, thanks so much uh, uh, for your presentations. I, I don't know uh, whether any of us here in the room have gotten bottom line, uh, arrived at bottom line conclusions from this. We probably shouldn't expect it. I certainly haven't. And, and it occurs to me that maybe I can uh, get some help from myself and from others by asking a question uh, that might help us answer other questions. Um, Judge uh, Easterbrook, you spoke about entry controls. What about exit controls? Should we abolish the bar exam? Uh, I think, uh, Professor Shepard, you mentioned the bar exam also, right, being a, a, fair, a, a newcomer. If we agree that we need a bar exam, then don't we need, or, or at least arguably, uh, shouldn't we have other substructure to help build a program uh, that is worthwhile? And in that case, don't we need the ALS, the ABA, whatever it is. I'm, I'm not sure that I see the distinction in, that you are drawing between entry and exit control. What, what I at least meant when I was referring to entry control is the bar exam, the three-year requirement, and then there's a quality control requirement, which you can think of as the accreditation requirement. Oh, no, no, no. I, I'm... Both, there's both control of entry into the legal education business and there's control of entry into the practice of law. 
There are two separate forms of entry control, although they're complementary in well, practice. Oh, so, so, so At least that's how I was referring to so it. That's so um, is it fair to say that you would predict that if we abolished the bar exam, um, there would be no change in the ability of practitioners? Is that a complete sentence? The ability of I practitioners, so. you, mean, you mean the skill, the general the skill, skill level? level yes, of practitioners? yes, yes. I'm sure it would rise. That's what the data show for other professions. I understood. That's why I raised the question. The, you know, with, we, we live in a world where the one important part of law and, uh, whether it's economics or statistics, is the, the ability to gather data and formulate and test hypotheses using other professions if need be. There, if you're thinking about quality, there was, let me go back to airplane regulation. There was a big prediction that if it became easier to enter the airplane, the airline business, and if there were co more competition on city pairs so that people would add new planes to the route between New York and Chicago until they were all full, that that would inevitably be accompanied by a decline in quality. And since consumers can't directly examine the quality of air travel, just as they can't directly examine the quality of legal services or, for that matter, medical services, there'd be no market means to control this decline in quality, and we would observe a rise in deaths per passenger mile. Well, we've run the experiment. The deaths per passenger mile have gone way down. So we've run this experiment on getting rid of entry control in many professions, the result has always been lower prices and higher quality hand in hand. And one would think, in a natural prediction, that the legal profession would be no different from other professions. I can't see why it would be different. Now, one can tell stories about why it would be different, but if, it, if we draw lessons from what's happened with other professions, I doubt that it would be different. I've, I've favored people toward the front. Uh, Ilya, let me uh, let you ask a question, then I'll come back to the front here. Uh, Ilya Soman, George Mason Law School, I guess uh, Judge Easterbrook already <laughs> mentioned who I am, but um, uh, my question is, even if you agree, which I don't think I do, that some system of mandatory accreditation uh, for law schools is necessary, uh, I wonder, is there any case for having that system be run by the ABA, which seems to be an organization, with, with due respect to uh, Representative the President here, it seems to be an organization that has an obvious self-interest in setting up barriers to entry rather than in uh, introducing some kind of consumer-friendly or pro-consumer uh, efforts, obviously. If you have the organization control access to a profession that is itself the representative of incumbent professionals, I think it stands to reason over time what you would expect it to do uh, is to act to uh, you know, reduce entry and run a cartel. Uh, if we are serious about having some kind of accreditation system that uh, you know, is actually helps law students who are consumers of legal services, uh, shouldn't we then argue that it should at the very least be done by some sort of neutral body which doesn't have the kind of conflict of interest that the ABA does. Uh, so that's my question. Uh, even if you agree that there should be a accreditation, why should it be run by the ABA as opposed to an, a neutral body of some sort? 
I might say something about that. I, uh, I'm not the world's biggest defender of the ABA, but I, but I, the the law requires that there be an accrediting body approved by the ABA for law schools as well as colleges and universities. And I, I just hate to think who that might be if not the ABA. I, um, you get some pretty wacky ideas about uh, what we ought to be doing in law school if you replace the ABA with a neutral body. If by neutral you mean somebody who doesn't know anything about law schools. If I can make one other very quick observation, um, although it's an imperfect process, the ABA is currently in the midst of some fairly serious self-study and introspection about the accreditation process, and there are a number of task forces that have been commissioned. I'm on one of them, the, the, the task force on transparency, and I suspect oh. that what will emerge is uh, recommendations. More paper and less transparency. Yeah. Well, I... I, I I suspect that what will emerge is a recommendation in the next year or two uh, that the accreditation process be substantially more transparent. Uh, and, uh, well, I'll just leave it there. I think, I think that, that, that you'll see that. To the end of trying to eliminate the perception that there is secret law regarding the accreditation process uh, and, to the, uh, per, and also trying to make more accessible the common law that has come to surround the accreditation process. I suspect you'll see those things happen. I'll just add one other thing, which is actually if you, uh, if you go on the Internet, there's a huge amount of information available to prospective law students now that was either unavailable or just extremely difficult to get just a few years ago mm -hmm. in terms of bar passage rates, in terms of starting salaries, uh, in terms of all the kinds of things that ought to go into a, an informed consumer decision. So technology may be stepping in uh, where the profession uh, dares not tread. By way of uh, Rob Nadelson, University of Montana, Professor Campos, by way of uh, just preliminary observation, it actually would help your case, I think, to point out that 18th century English pleading was very much a learned and multidisciplinary process. Um, we, at, at the University of Montana, a little over two years, about a little over 20 years ago, we embarked on a curricular project that was, was very, got a lot of notice. And in some ways, it parallels what, um, what WNL may do. Um, the results, I would say, have been mixed. On the one hand, arguably it has, while it has not raised us up out of the third tier, arguably it has prevented us from falling into the fourth tier, where one might predict we would otherwise be given the, the, the level of our financial investment. Um, I think another positive aspect of it is that the quality of the student's education, uh, their ability to write, for example, their ability to problem solve, is probably higher than it otherwise would be. The, um, uh, the biggest downside, I would say, and one that you may, was tangentially suggested that you may encounter, is that uh, it's sometimes difficult to keep the quality of the scholarship up. Uh, many people who are interested in doing scholarship are not interested in that particular curricular model. And uh, sometimes there's a tendency to hire people who, while they, I speak with, as someone with 11 years practice experience myself, but very often there are not a lot of people who have 11 years practice experience who want to come in and, and, and do scholarship. So that, that I think is going to be one of your challenges. Mm -hmm. 
If I can just add a, a small anecdote, uh, that such people are available. My colleague Richard Posner, who very few people would accuse of being uh, inadequately intellectual, uh, asked one year to, to uh, teach evidence at the University of Chicago. Uh, and he began to teach it, and he concluded that teaching evidence out of a casebook was a disaster. So he modeled he formed an evidence class that was done just the way Washington and Lee is talking about doing the third year. And it was done both as a, an experimental uh, flight simulator approach to evidence, but in a highly intellectual way. They can be married. Now, it, it, maybe there'll be a lot of difficulty finding the people who want to marry them. But one of the great virtues of competition is we can run the experiment 50 times over at 50 different law schools and see how it plays out. For 37 years, I've done about 18 accreditation inspections, uh, uh, and I've had a lot of thoughts about them. One, I don't think that they are very effective in uh, keeping the market out because we get a lot of law schools coming in. But they are subject to capture by various groups, some ideological groups, some economic groups. And I do think overall it has increased the uh, price of education uh, because uh, of the ABA pressures. And I've seen that in my own school and, and elsewhere. But um, I'm wondering whether the ABA is the real issue now. Uh, I think the elephant uh, that hasn't been, uh, has barely been mentioned is the, uh, 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 is the list from U.S. News and World Report. And I think for any school outside the, the five that are in the top three, uh, they pay a great deal of attention to it. And if you get down into the second tier, where I happen to be at the moment, my school, not me, I'm a judge of an inferior court, right? Yes. But <laughs> you always have to understand that the right way. So, and there we are. And uh, I think that is actually doing more to drive the schools into expenses and into other kinds of activities that make them more homogenous and I think create more problems uh, along the line that uh, Professor Shepard has indicated. And I don't know if any of you have any thoughts about uh, the wonderful institution of the U.S. News and its effect on law school education. I have an observation about that just in support of your point. I, um, there are four big um, categories that the U.S. News measures and various subcategories of those. But one of the four big categories is expenditures per student. And um, you are rewarded in the U.S. News for spending more on each student in their education. It's a, it's, I mean, in, in any other business, it would be a perverse kind of incentive. But there's that. It, it is a sort of interesting. It's 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 a it's a. I mean, we've we've touched on the effect of U.S. news on tuition policies, on tuition discounting, um, on expenditures. All of us, I think, um, whether we're mi uh, postal mail carriers or not, are aware of the, what, what's being called law porn, um, uh, law school pornography. You know, law school um, uh, publicity about about alleged. Um, scholarly and other achievements. Um, and the, the, it's being pushed not by public 
sector regulation, but by a, you know, a private sector phenomenon that's operating in the you know, U.S. news as a, as a commercial market, market operator. Um, so um, it's, it's, it's not only public regulation that can, that can drive, if not to distort, um, what institutions do, do. There can be other pushes. U.S. news is clearly one of them. It just seems to me that the combination of the U.S. news pressures and accreditation is just really pathologic because you have the, the price increases that are created by the accreditation system, plus you have the, the, the incentives to, to, to spend all that the market can possibly bear that are caused by U.S. news, and you, you get this spiral of cost. Yeah, an additional factor I think that uh, should be mentioned is that we're in a profession that is obsessed with hierarchy and which that gets reflected in all kinds of things, including uh, U.S. News and World Report, but also with this, this, in my view, just really unseemly uh, obsession with, like, figuring out, like, who the top law reviews are and who the top, you know, people with the most citations in the top law reviews and basically everything invidious about, like, Brian Leiter and, you know, us and, and his associates in terms of trying to construct a discourse in which... Uh, we're constantly, we're just obsessed with sorting and in ways I think that often are very anti-intellectual, especially when you consider that we all know that the top uh, five law schools are going to be to remain the top five law schools in a turnum because uh, they're the top five law schools because they, uh, essentially because of, uh, for, uh, for two reasons, economics and custom, right? I mean, you could, you could replace Harvard's entire faculty uh, with a bunch of people pulled off the street and Harvard would be like fourth in the U.S. News World Rankings instead of like second, right? That doesn't seem very good. And there are those who think this has already been done. <laughs> I didn't want to say but, that. But, but with that, part of, the, part of the moderator's job is to keep the trains running on time, so I want to thank the panel members and thank the audience.